Hi, this is Josh Penn, and you're listening to the Ole Miss RUF podcast on October the 10th, 2007. Let's give our attention tonight to the reading of God's Word. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven horns and ten, seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule over all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to His throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman that had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished, for a time, and times, and half a time. The serpent poured water out like a river of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help to the help of the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sands of the sea. This is God's Word for us. Okay, tell me what the following stories have in common. Imagine, first of all, someone goes to the doctor complaining of headaches. 
they've been taking to remedy their headaches a bunch of aspirin. They've tried Bayer, they've tried Advil, they've tried Motrin. Nothing is working. And the doctor, after examining him very carefully and doing a CAT scan of his head, finds out that there's actually a tumor inside. In other words, their problem is infinitely more serious than the remedies they were applying allowed. Imagine this. Imagine there's a young woman who has noticed that her boyfriend has become distant. And she thinks to herself that the reason for that distance is because I've not done anything special for him. And so one particular night, she makes him dinner, hoping that somehow this will remedy the situation and the distance existing between them. But what she discovers in the midst of their dinner as he confesses, feeling guilty for what she's done, is that he's actually been seeing someone else behind her back the entire time. In other words, her remedies to help deal with the situation that she had were not adequate because they did not understand the realities behind them. You follow me? Many times we often find that the reasons why the answers that we're trying to find in our life don't work is because there's a whole other story going on behind the scenes that we are not privy to. And the remedies that we apply to them haven't worked because we haven't seen that hidden reality. Okay, so let me ask you this question. What is the reason why the 20th century was without question the most violent and bloody century up to this time in human history? What would you blame our present evil and struggles on? Perhaps if you were in China, you might blame the totalitarian regime that basically puts Christians in prison and limits the distribution of Bibles. Perhaps if you went to the nation of Africa, you could point to indigenous tribalism or perhaps the lack of trained leadership. Maybe the scourge of the AIDS epidemic as it comes. You might point to the drought in the Sahel or maybe even could point to militant Islam that has created so much unrest in that particular country. If you came to the Western countries like ourselves and Europe, you could easily talk about material prosperity or uh, rap, the rapid pace of life, perhaps that sort of gnawing sense of alienation that we in the West have. What is the cause of the evil that we've experienced in the 20th century and continue to experience on to the 21st? Because what John is saying to us tonight in Revelation chapter 12 is that there is another story going on behind this story. And very oftentimes, the remedies that we attempt to employ to fix our lives and the world around us do not work because we're unaware of that story. What we have here in Revelation 12 through 14 constitute a major section in the book display of God's wrath beginning in verse 16. We're coming to that very soon. But what John is saying is he's giving his suffering people the underlying cause for why they're going through such a horrific pain. This is the reason why he's saying and the underlying cause is nothing less than the rage of Satan. It is all around us the rage of Satan that creates the suffering of God's people. And the reason why our antidote, antidotes to this suffering have failed is because we failed to account for this in these categories. I'm trying to offer to you tonight God's perspective on your suffering and answer some questions of why 
and also answer some questions of how we can best deal with it. Three thoughts I want to give to you tonight. First of all, I have to convince you that the devil is working. Secondly, I've got to tell you why the devil is working. And then finally, we'll talk about how the devil is defeated. First of all, I have to convince you that the devil is working. Who are these characters that take place in Revelation chapter 12? Well, first of all, we have the woman. I'm going to argue with you tonight that the woman stands for the people of God. That is both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Now, why do I say that? Well, very simply, because very oftentimes in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the people of God are spoken of as a woman. Isaiah 54 says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Galatians chapter 4 verse 26, Paul says, But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. What's he talking about? He's talking about the community of believers. In other words, what John has done is he has personified all of God's people in the figure of this woman who is pregnant, as it turns out, and is about to give birth. And what does she give birth to? She gives birth to the one who is the Messiah. The one who will be taken up into heaven and reign over the nations with a rod of iron. To put it succinctly, the woman is the people of God who through her seed, through her line, produced the Messiah. Jesus is the one spoken of as the male child of the woman. Secondly, who is the dragon? Well, we see that the dragon has authority. He has seven heads and horns. He has great power because of the seven crowns. And he is murderous. That's the reason why he is red. And what we find out is he is the one who is the accuser of our brothers. He is the one who accuses them day and night before our God. This ought to remind us of a small scene that takes place at the very beginning chapters of the book of Job in the Old Testament. Where we get this weird scene where Satan appears before God and begins to malign Job for the easy life that God has given to him. This is the job of the devil, the arch demon, the evil one. He comes and he's fallen from heaven and he sweeps a third out. Now look. Those are the two characters that John lays out before us in Revelation 12. And in the Christian view of the world, you've got to grasp this. You're missing the way in which Christianity casts the world. If you miss this one idea, that is behind the evil that we see in the world, there is there's something more than just an impersonal force. There's something far more dangerous than just a bad karma. Rather, behind the evil that we see in the world, there is a malevolent personality. There is a person. And I recognize for a crowd like this, (laughs) there is no way that at least some of you don't listen to that and go, really? I mean, how archaic does that really sound? To speak of a personal devil, as if there's a, you know, red pajamaed man walking around with horns and a pitchfork and a, a bifurcated tail or something like that. Sorry. But I want to convince you, but I want to try to convince you if you're one of those skeptics here tonight that actually the culture is moving against you. And I and I can tell you that when it all started, has anybody noticed or is it just me that it seems like every other commercial that comes on television for a movie is a horror flick. Is this just me? 
And the interesting thing is, about 10 or 15 years ago, this just was not the case. In many ways, the horror flick had gone the way of the sort of comic horror flick. The, the Friday the 13th movies, you know, reet, 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 those kind of things that are just ridiculous and comic. But there came a movie in 1999 that I think restarted the whole thing over again in a completely new way. And it was called The Blair Witch Project. You might have gone and seen it when you were a child. And the interesting thing about The Blair Witch Project was, is there was no gore. Everything that happened in the movie was all inferential. It was all off camera in the very shaky sort of scenery, the way in which they did it. And the first, for the first time, you began to have a generation of people that rose up and looked around and said, when we see the evil that the world has inflicted through a 9-11 or through the Sudan or in Rwanda 12 years ago or perhaps the Bosnian ethnic cleansing, you had a group of people rising up and saying, you know something? I think there's somebody out there. I think there's somebody in those woods out there that we can't see. And the Blair Witch Project all of a sudden turned the culture to all of a sudden entertain the thought, maybe we're not alone. And in many ways, Hollywood's fascination with these movies is sort of bringing an acknowledgement that it's naive for you to think that evil is just... that the reason why we have evil in this world is just because those people were brought up with a bad environment. They had a bad upbringing. Really? Do you really think that that's what caused that young man in the school in Wisconsin today, was it today or yesterday, to go and gun down his teacher and some of his fellow students? Are you really going to chalk that up to bad karma? Are you going to chalk that up to just, oh, mental illness? Because in the Christian view of the world, there is behind all of these things a person And he is a person who has at the chief end of his existence to bring destruction to God's people. And in my opinion, the burden of proof is on you. The burden of proof is on you, the skeptic tonight, to explain the massive evil that we've experienced in the 20th century with something other than a personal literal devil. In many ways, I think for a lot of us in America, it's a little bit silly for us to claim that there is no devil. Because we have not been faced with the kind of evil that other countries around the world have. To be honest with you, as soon as violence reaches our shores in a mass way, not just on our televisions at night, oh, I think we'll see us change our tune. But I'm simply trying to appeal to you on the basis of the Christian worldview that there is a devil behind it all. There is the rage of the dragon who is working throughout human history to work against the purposes of God's purpose in the woman and through through her child. Which brings me to the second point. Why? We see that the devil is working, but why is the devil working? Because there is no Christian who expects what the devil is doing, what the great dragon is up to, to stop this side of heaven. Why? Well, we have it there in verse 6 and also in verse 14. What are those very weird enigmatic numbers for? Did you notice those? Verse 6 in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. What are those about? Now bear with me. If you listened carefully at all tonight, I need you for the next four minutes to listen now. I'll bet you $5 that there is no one in this room that would have to think hard for the meaning of these numbers. 
four score and seven years ago. Now, for most of you in this room, you do not immediately think to yourself, um, 87. That's not what you think about. When I say them in that way, what is recalled in the sort of national consciousness of being Americans is a time in our history when deep national divisions threatened to divide us. But we prevailed over them, right? And we preserved the union in the process. Well, it just so happens that there were some numbers for these early Jewish people that had the same kind of power. And they weren't necessarily meant to be taken literally. Let me see if I can explain. You see, 400 years, um, there were 400 years that existed between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Did you know that? Sorry, maybe I should inform you. Guess what? There are 400 years that existed between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. All kinds of history that happened there. During that time, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, had come under the, dom- the, the domination of what was known as the Seleucid dynasty there in Syria. And there arose a new king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And this king was basically highly against Judaism and made his attempt to crush Judaism and to force feed paganism to them. And after moving his armies into Jerusalem, he instantly made it a capital offense to observe the Sabbath, to keep the Torah, or even to be a priest. Something of an offense to Jewish people, you might say. And suddenly the slaughter began. But in the year 167 B.C., there were Syrian troops that marched up into the hill countries to find an old priest by the name of Mattathias. Mattathias uh, um, uh, approached the emissaries as he came to them. And in his zeal as being a solid Jewish person, he pulled out a sword and he killed one of the emissaries as he came to take him. Mattathias had a son who was named Judas. Judas had a nickname. Judas's nickname was The Hammer. And you can imagine how he got that nickname. He was a very fierce warrior. And in, um, in Aramaic, the word hammer is, tr- is translated Maccabeus. His name was Judas Maccabeus. And Judas Maccabeus in many ways started guerrilla warfare as we know it. He's the beginning. His movements are still studied, I hear, at West Point. At least that's what the commentary that I was reading told me. Anyway, Judas Maccabeus fights this alien army in, 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 um, uh, of, the, of, the, of the Seleucid dynasty for, guess what? Listen, listen. Three and a half years. Three and a half years, this battle goes on, a bloody warfare, until finally there was a real battle and the Syrian armies were soundly defeated and the temple was rededicated. Three and a half years later, in 164 B.C. For this reason, y'all, three and a half years became like fourscore and seven years for us. You follow me? Three and a half years meant that to these people. And what it stood for was a period, listen, 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 of intense suffering before God would manifest Himself in saving power. Did you catch that? That's what it meant to them. Three and a half years meant a period of time in which God would bring salvation during suffering. Or, if you count them up on a 30-day month, it turned out to be, you guessed it, 1,260 days. Or, time... Times, that is two more years, and half a time, three and a half years. 
I'm suggesting that all of what they're talking about refer to the history in Judaism between 164 and 167. Now we can understand what John is saying. He is saying that there has been a time appointed, O people of God, in which you are to suffer the rage of the dragon. And it will go on for a very specific period of time, a time in which only God knows. But then suddenly He will manifest Himself in absolute power and save you. That is the story that's being told. In other words, John is saying that this is true, this story is true for all times. This is not something that only happened in the past, nor is it something that's only going to happen in the future. The story that we're reading in chapter 12 of Revelation is going on right now. It's still happening all around us. Now we understand the question of why. The reason why is because Satan is a defeated foe. Look at verse 12. He knows he is a defeated foe. D.A. Carson in his wonderful commentary on this point says that this is very psychologically believable. In World War II, after D-Day, everybody knew that it was just a matter of time. When when, When the Allied forces landed on Normandy, we knew the war was over. But does that mean that Hitler just gave up? Absolutely not. Y'all, in the months following D-Day, it, there came some of the worst fighting of World War II, not the least of which was the Battle of the Bulge. Ask your grandparents, right? But finally this means we're ready to make predictions about the future. So you didn't think I was going to do this, did you? Les doesn't make predictions about the future. I got one tonight, right here, okay? Here it is. This is my prediction for what's going to happen in the future. I feel like I'm going to have a drum roll or something, right? What will happen in your lifetime, and your children's lifetime, and your grandchildren's lifetime? Simply put, the gospel of Jesus Christ will advance. And Satan will oppose it with great fury until Jesus one day will put an end to it all. A day which no one knows what it is. That's it. Ta-da! That's it. That is exactly what John is saying. That the gospel will march forward. It will be opposed by Satan. Until Jesus is ready to put an end to it all. Okay, so now we're ready to ask the final question. So the how is that going to happen less? How is Satan defeated? How is the devil defeated? Well, we have a wonderful illustration here. There's actually three things that John gives us. And we're going to talk a whole lot more next week about the manner in which Satan opposes his people. But what this passage gives us is how he's to be overcome. Notice what he says first of all. First of all, he overcomes because the woman is always protected. In verse 6, she flees where? Into the desert. It's a wonderful little verse in Hosea chapter 2, verse 14 that says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Who is God talking about through the mouth of Hosea? He's talking about the people of God. That God says there's going to be those times in which I'm going to call my people into the wilderness. And the wilderness there is an image of a place where God will be tender with you. A place where He will speak joy to you, where He'll speak love to you and kindness to you. In other words, the the wilderness is a place where God will, will heal His people. The point is this. The devil will always be pictured in the Bible as being on God's chain. C.S. Lewis makes this point very well in his little book, The Screwtape Letters. The devil is not the opposite of God. It's not the case. The devil, if he has an opposite, is opposite to Michael the archangel. But to elevate the devil as if he's the opposite of God is to suggest that he has the same kind of power that God has, and he does not. 
The Bible pictures the devil in just as much subjection to God's will as the rest of his creation is. And there's this beautiful imagery in the Old Testament that we get of a great eagle sort of swooping God's people away in order to nourish them. There's a wonderful passage in Exodus 19, verse 4, where he says, You yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Oh, I love that thought. Do you see what's happening? The way in which you defeat Satan is by resting in the thought that God has protected you no matter what. God protects you no matter what. What is the worst they can do to you, Christian? Except take your life. And Jesus says, even then you are on eagle's wings. Listen, I would suggest to you this evening that the very heartbeat of protecting yourself against Satan is realizing that it cannot be done as long as you're gripped in a slavish fear and wondering whether God is really on your side or not. And that brings me to my second point. The second way in which they overcame the dragon was as the loud voice sings by the blood of the Lamb. The original Greek there reads like this. They overcame him, listen, on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. In other words, you could translate that as saying it was instrumental to how they overcame. That is this. Y'all, when Jesus died on the cross for his people and he shed his own blood for them, John is saying that that great redemptive act freed them from their sins and established their right to reign. And this new right has so come to dominate their personality that their very identity now rests upon it. That that fact of what Jesus did for me 2,000 years on the cross now becomes for me the way in which I even look at me. Let me put it to you this way. There are few more sort of tale-telling moments in a religious person's life than the first 10 seconds of your prayer. You ever notice this? What do you do in the first 10 seconds of your prayer? How will you approach? What right do you have to speak to God? I would suggest to you that for the vast majority of us, we do a quick scan of the preceding days. A couple days... Maybe a week. Have I behaved? Have I offended God? How long has it been since the last time that we spoke? In other words, the confidence that you have in your prayer. Listen, listen. The confidence that you have in your prayer is based upon your performance. And if that's true of you, then your confidence, you are still unclear about the power of the blood of the Lamb. You see, because the thing that so jazzed these early Christians was that their rights to speak about God were not established on the basis of anything that they had done. Anything. Not even their believing. Not even their repenting. Some of you are horribly confused about this. The truth of the matter is, you think that God likes you because you had faith in Him. When the truth of the matter is, that God could judge you horribly, forever, for the quality of your faith. Please, don't build your life on the quality of your faith. Because that's not faith in Jesus, that's faith in your faith. You see, these early believers looked and said, my righteousness comes from outside of me. And the reason why you are so grief-stricken as a Christian and the reason why you are so able to be accused by the dragon 
Because you're constantly looking inside. Is there assurance for me? Is there joy in my relationship with Christ? Well, I don't know how well did I do this week. Have I prayed? Have I read my Bible? I haven't been arguing. Is that how you stand before God? Because the one who stands up and sings to all creation says, They overcame by the blood of the Lamb. Because that is the, ma- that is the one fact of my identity that is so absolute that there's nothing you can do to me, Satan, to shake me from it. It's absolute. Look, think about how powerful this is. What's the greatest temptation to us when we suffer? You ever thought about this? You ever been through a hard time that we could be considered suffering? That many of you have. In my opinion, the thing that makes our suffering so hard is our temptation to totalize that pain. You know what I mean by that? In other words, it's not just that my girlfriend thinks that I'm not worth dating anymore. It's that I'm not worth dating anymore at all that creeps up over me. That, my friends, is the suffering. With every moment of discouragement, the temptation comes to own that discouragement as the definition of who we are. That's what makes your suffering so miserable. That's why you cry. But those that overcome the devil, (laughs) the people that can resist the rage of Satan, do so because there is another totalizing force inside of you that's more powerful than those discouragements, that keep those things from getting in, into that, as I've been talking to many of you about in the last couple weeks, this inner unassailable center that's been bought by the blood of the Lamb. My friends, this is what it means to resist the devil and he will flee. Sadly, most of us who talk about resisting the devil spend all of our time binding him, whatever that means, and I would suggest giving him way more credit than he deserves. My friends, the way you resist the devil is by trusting what the blood of the Lamb says about you and not him. Finally, and I'll finish with this. They overcame him by the word of their testimony. Now look, y'all, that does not mean that they stood up and gave their testimony at church. To be quite frank with you, those kinds of experiences, in my experience, oftentimes do the opposite of what they're intended to do. Sometimes those, uh, uh, t- uh, those kinds of testimonies end up exalting the person and not Jesus. Sometimes. But what John says is that these people simply talked about these things. They overcame with the word of their testimony. Meaning suddenly Jesus had done something so amazing that I simply wanted to talk about it. And unfortunately, so many of us are so insecure about God's love for us that we've lost even the ability to know how to talk about it with our friends. Look, I'm not talking about having some deep, convincing, airtight apologetic for Christianity. So we can answer everybody's questions. All I'm simply talking about is going home perhaps tonight and looking at your roommate and saying, what did you think about that? I mean, did you buy into any of that? I mean, what, what, how about that? I'm getting convinced that one of the main tools of the devil is our silence. We've lost our ability to talk to you. Let me ask you this question. Is there someone with whom you need to talk to about this tonight? Is that a fair question? I'm not saying ask questions. I'm not saying go find a counselor. I'm saying just talk it out. Because the devil is overcome when people begin all of a sudden by the word of their testimony to toy with the thought that the blood of Jesus could cover all sins. You believe that? Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, without that, then the dragon is the sure victor. But you have promised that we will overcome. And you have told us that we will overcome because of your protection, because of the blood of the Lamb, and because we found it to be so over-the-top unbelievable that the very word of our testimony, that we gossiped the gospel, that the dragon has overcome. He longs for us to remain in silence. He longs for us to go out of this place and be so distracted by it that we don't ever think to talk about it again. God, I pray that You would, by Your grace and Your Holy Spirit, put an uncontrollable urge to say something to somebody for the people in this room. And in so doing, would You push back the fears that cause us to define ourselves by the way we look or the way we act or the way we talk or how smart we are or how funny we are. And help us rather to allow what happened 2,000 years ago to be the most fundamental thing that defines me. And defeat the dragon by your own great purposes. And we long to be your witnesses to it. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.